in our worship this morning, in deep, deep, deep worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this great hymn that surveys Christ and the work of Christ on the cross, Isaac Watts writes an amazing, amazing last stanza. The last stanza reads as follows. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Oh, that we would be a people of God that think like that again, right? Love so amazing, so divine, demands everything that we have, demands it all. Over the past few weeks, we have been studying this great chapter of John chapter 4, whereby John articulates the great love of God, the great love of God that he has. And specifically, he talks about that agape love of God, that preferential love of God, that love that involved God's choice, God's moral choice to love, the great love of God. John is known as the disciple of love, and he writes so often of it. He writes of this amazing love and how that translates into the life of a believer. Look at some of the things we've been seeing. In John chapter 4, 7, the apostle John writes, everyone who loves, and again, every time that word love is written, it is the agape form of love. Everyone who loves is born of God. Adding to, this thought, adding to this thought in verse 8, John writes, the one who does not love does not know God. In verse 9, John tells us that the love of God is manifested in the life of believers. John goes on in verse 10 that this agape, this preferential sacrificial love that God has for the believer was supremely demonstrated on the cross in that Christ became a sacrifice for us. That God loved us, not that we loved God. And in verse 11, John writes that that agape love is the standard with which believers ought to love one another. Believers are to prefer to love. Believers choose to love. Believers love without reciprocation or expectation of something in return, just as God in Christ loved us. In part three of this topic about this amazing love of God, we will see the love of God is consummated, or as John states, is perfected. It's perfected in the believer. Simply put, the love of God is perfected in the believer's love for God and the believer's love for one another in the body of Christ. So in our text today, we're going to see the following. We're going to see that God's love testifies, number one, to God the Father, number two, to the Holy Spirit, to number three, to Christ the Son, and lastly, God's love testifies 
in the believer's union with Christ. The believer's union with Christ. So turn with me to John chapter 4, and I'm going to read through verses 12 through 15, and then we'll walk through the text. I'll pick up from verse 11 for context. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So let's take a look at the first one, that the love of God testifies to God the Father in verse 12. John writes, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. John makes the point that no person has seen God. But that does not mean that we cannot see the effects of a life that is touched by God. And I think that's really important. For over 2,000 years, the church has been evidencing and manifesting the impact of people whose love and whose heart have been touched by the love of God, and therefore they reciprocate that love to others. And many times they do that without reward, without earthly reward. We become a people that have become so expected for a cause and effect. If I do, something happens if I do. But there are many times in the kingdom of God when we do and nothing happens that we see in this earthly realm. But yet God would cause us to continue to persevere, continue to go forward, continue to do the work of the Lord. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is full of those who labored, 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 and never saw the reward of their labors. I think of Genesis chapter 6, and I think of Noah, the preacher of righteousness, who preached for 120 years. And yet when the day came for judgment, and the time came, no one other than Noah's family entered that ark. He was mocked, he was ridiculed. I think of the great prophets. Name one. Pick one. Isaiah. You know what his reward was? He was sawn in two for being a prophet of God. I think of my favorite prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. Labored, labored incessantly, calling Israel and calling Judah to repent, to repent. Warning them of the judgment of God, the judgment of God, the judgment of God. He was ultimately killed. Several times assassinations were made on his life. He was thrown into a cistern that he hoped that they were going to die just being sucked into the mud and he would die. He was rescued, for all accounts, by an unbeliever. Probably the closest thing he had to a convert, his servant. But he labored incessantly for the kingdom of God without reward. Go on, name another. You could talk about Amos. You could talk about Habakkuk. 
who looks out on the sea and sees a destroyed Israel and sees Israel completely destroyed, no harvest. But he said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And you can bring that to the New Testament. Look at our Lord Jesus Christ. What happened to the hordes of people that forced the Lord to push out in a boat and preach because they were closing in on him? Yet we know when the Lord died, there was a handful of people. Even his own had forsaken him. Take it further. Look at all the apostles. Look at all the disciples. Spread throughout the world. Every single one of them died a martyr's death alone. Look at the Apostle Paul. I was just telling a brother this morning. At the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, as he writes his farewell letter to his spiritual son Timothy, he makes a startling statement. This man who was beaten, who was flogged, who was pursued, who was arrested, who had been thrown in jail multiple times, who started multiple churches all across Asia, this man writes to his spiritual son Timothy and he says this, All in Asia have forsaken me as he is languishing in a Roman dungeon right before his beheading. Think of Timothy. Timothy was martyred for the faith. Think of some of the early church fathers like Polycarp, a disciple of John. 83 years he's arrested and he's burned at the stake alive. Many times in the kingdom of God we're called to do things with which we do not see, do not perceive the earthly reward. We are left there perplexed thinking, why, Lord, why? I I was talking to somebody this week about the Apostle Paul, and I said, I can't help but believe because Paul was a man that sometime in that dungeon when he was all alone, damp, ill, and sick, that the thought had to cross his mind. I don't get it, Lord. I don't get it. But what do we see as a result? We see the manifest love of God in each of these lives. Noah obeyed God, built the ark, and through him, salvation was extended to the rest of mankind. Through Isaiah and the prophets, they preached the word and spoke of a Christ who was to come, who would offer salvation to all of mankind. And the word of God continued to go forward. Through the disciples, they took the gospel of Jesus Christ and they spread to the furthest most points of the earth, bringing the gospel to people who would have no access to the gospel. The apostle Paul, though no everyone in Asia had forsaken him, to this day, perhaps the greatest mind that God ever, ever probably put on the planet earth. And to this day, his ministry is still impacting lives today. The Apostle Paul impacted my life. I sit there and I read the epistles. I read Romans. I read Colossians. I I read Philippians. I read all of his 14 epistles. And I sit there dumbfounded. And the impact of that ministry Go straight to my heart. The Apostle Paul see it? I don't know if he sees it now. But I'll tell you what. 
because of the love of God that was shed abroad in his heart as he writes in Romans 5.5. The Apostle Paul, although he languished in that dungeon, although he refused to deny Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, history tells us, can be led out of that dungeon to his beheading and he's unassisted. And nobody has to steady him. And he sees the chopping block there. And he could walk to that chopping block. And he could ask to pray. And they give him an opportunity to pray. And he kneels down and he prays. We don't know what he prays. But I'm sure it went something like this. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, Lord. And the Apostle Paul then subsequently gets up puts his hands behind his back. They are not bound. They are not tied. Lays his head willingly and enters glory. Yes, for 2,000 years we have seen the manifested love of God in believers' lives. And we see that love of God manifested here in some of your lives in some of your sacrifices, in the things that you do for the kingdom of God that go unrecognized, go unrewarded. Many times I'm sure some of you go, why, 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 Lord, is it working out this way? But what are we to do? We go forward. We go forward. We go forward. John says here in verse 12, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. Here he testifies of the love for God the Father. The love that gets manifested, that gives glory to the God the Father. It is believers in Christ that have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is believers in Christ who love with the agape love of God. We've been beating that to death, haven't we, over the last three weeks? about preferential love, about God choosing to love, about sacrificial love, about not having an expectation of anything being returned. Yet the Scripture is very clear. That's the manner in which we ought to love one another. I had a great opportunity this week to have a phone call with a brother that I knew from the prayer group, but never directly had a phone call with him. And we got on the phone together. And instantaneously, the love of Christ unites us together. Instantaneously. Two weeks ago, I had a great privilege to meet another like-minded pastor in the Orlando area. We got together for coffee. He's feeling the same way I'm feeling. Hey, I'm out on an island somewhere, you know, and it's very, very few men that you have around that could encourage you, you know, other pastors that could come along and encourage you. We met for coffee. I didn't know what he looked like from a hole in the wall. I just told him, look for a big guy with a white hat on, and I'll be sitting there. And he walked in, we sat down, and we spent an hour and a half together, and it was just as if we knew each other for five years. The love of Christ binds us. Why? Because it testifies of the Father. This is what God intended. The church is not just a club where people share common interests. The church is those that are bound together in the blood of Jesus Christ, in the koinonia of the Holy Spirit, with a love for one another. 
And oh my goodness, how this has to be demonstrated more and more. There wouldn't be the volume of church splits. There wouldn't be the volume of dissension. There wouldn't be the volume of argumentation that goes on in the church. I think of my dad's church. 88 years it stood. 88 years between my grandfather and my grandmother. My father went to glory and the church went to the pit. And that church still survives, I think, only by the grace of God. And I pray that God has a resurrection work for that church. My family has given blood in that church. And I pray that God one day is going to raise up that church and is going to raise up men of God and that the unity of the church is going to come back together and they're going to love one another because what God began, God will finish. I look at this church. There isn't an iota of doubt in my heart that this church is an accident. Not an iota of doubt that God was very specific in the foundation of this church. That God has a desire for this church. And let me be the first to say that the church, our church is not perfect. And let me be the first to say that I'm not perfect. That I am a knucklehead. That I make mistakes. Maybe sometimes I say things I shouldn't say. Maybe sometimes I don't say things I should say. Amen. That I am fallible. Amen. That I am but a man. But let me tell you something. But you'll also find me in the early morning of the hours on my knees before God, praying that God would move in this church. Seven days a week, multiple times a day, when I lift up you and I lift up you by name and I pray, God, move upon this brother, move upon this sister. Do a great work, almighty God. God's love is manifested as it testifies of that great love for God. In verse 12, John says this, His love is perfected in us. That word perfected means it's consummated. It's reached its pinnacle. It's in the final phase. Let me share something with you. The Christian life is a life of service. Specifically service to God. Our obedience is out of love and devotion. Our love for Christ and His church is done not merely out of obligation. And let me say something. If you are compelled to oblige for the sake of obliging, check your heart. Nothing that we do should be for self, should be for recognition, should be for accolade. What we do should be out of the agape love of God for us. Therefore, in the church, serving doesn't become a burden. But rather, serving others, serving the church becomes a pleasure. Because in so doing, love is perfected in us when we love like God. I've said this before, I'll continue to say this again. There is no service for Christ without sacrifice. 
God doesn't work around our convenience. God does not work around our leisure. You want to serve God? Get prepared to be inconvenience. Be prepared to sacrifice. Be prepared to do and nobody know. Jesus said, when you do a good deed, what do you say? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. If you're going to bless somebody, bless them. Don't go around telling everybody, hey, guess what today? I bless brother, you know, so-and-so. I bless sister so-and-so. Do it and let God know alone. I pray with all of my heart that we as a church would be that type of church. Look at... Verse 13, this agape love testifies of the Holy Spirit. The apostle writes, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Throughout this epistle, John has repeatedly used words that speak to the believer's position in Christ. One of the more frequent words that he uses is that word abide. Or if you have a King James, to dwell. And we have seen this word throughout the epistle. We even see this word throughout the Gospel of John. To abide means to remain within, perpetually. It implies that it's perpetually remaining within. And John uses this term to speak of the believer's union with Christ. Union with Christ is a doctrine that states that Christ dwells perpetually with the believer through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. He is that seal. He seals the believer until the day of redemption, as Paul stated in Ephesians 1.13. He seals us. It's a stamp. It's a mark. The love of God that John is writing of is a love. Now, I want you to get this. The love of God that John is writing of is a love that is supernatural in origin. I think over the last hundred years, so much has been done to eliminate the supernatural aspects of this life in Christ. But this love given to us is given to us by God. Therefore, its origins in God is in God. And if it is of God, is if it is of God, it is supernatural in its origins. It is transcendent. What does that mean? It transcends all of the natural functions. How is it? You know, we used to pray when we first started the church. We used to pray, Lord, we pray for the nameless and faceless that thou hast ordained would join us. Anybody remember praying that in the very beginning? We pray for the nameless and faceless. You know what a nameless and faceless are? Most of you. You were nameless and faceless. But God in His sovereignty and His divine providence brought you in. He's brought other people in. He's brought other people out. I mean, it's like this happens all the time, right? But at some point, He has intersected you with the church. You know what? The same way He intersected you with the love of Jesus Christ. Some of you may have grown up in a church your entire life you heard the gospel. 
your entire life. And then you got to a point where you said, okay, I'm going to surrender my life to Christ and I'm going to submit myself to Him. But some of you may not have. Some of you may have had a harder life. Some of you may have never heard the gospel the way we preach the gospel in this church. And yet God in His infinite wisdom and in His divine sovereignty and providence brought you to that place of repentance and faith in Christ. How did He do that? Well, the Father drew, as Jesus said in John 6, no man can come to Me unless the Father draw him. But then the work of the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And the work of the Holy Spirit brings about repentance. And the work of the Holy Spirit brings about new life in Christ. And the work of the Holy Spirit brings about sanctification. Why does God do all these things? He does it for a reason. For His glory. So that people could say, hey, I remember Brother Mike when we used to go and do this, that, and the other thing. And somebody could say, hey, I remember Sister Sue when we used to do this, that, and the other thing. And they could say all the things you used to do, but they can't say what you're doing today. And all they could say is, my goodness, what happened to that person? We used to have such a great time together. Now he's one of them holy rollers. The love of God testifies of the Holy Spirit. And John says, by this we know we abide in Him. When the Spirit of God gives testimony of our position in Christ, not only will others know, but we will know. We will know that we have union with Christ. That we belong to Christ. Listen, one of the most common questions, I think, in, in all of my years since I have been preaching, um, doing Bible studies, witnessing to people, probably one of the most significant questions I have always been asked is this. How do I know that I am saved and that Christ dwells in me? And I think there's a lot of confusion with this because if you look over the past 50, 60 years, salvation has been defined as I'm going to heaven versus being defined as I have been born again and I am made new in Christ. So most of the time when people asking me that, the underlying question is how do I know if I'm going to go to heaven? That's the underlying question. And I think one of the reasons is how the gospel has been misrepresented. Matter of fact, I think there's a real, there's really an issue here where people have referred to being born again as a personal decision. A personal decision. And that is a misrepresentation of the gospel. It is not a personal decision. Instead, God has caused you, if you are in Christ, to be born again. God initiated. God is the one who substantiates the change. God is the one who secures the change. And God is the one who holds you in Christ. So many times, 
When somebody says, how do I know if I'm saved? It's not uncommon for people to say, well, did you ask Jesus into your heart? And were you really sincere about that? Hey man, you could be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. And they boiled that down. Well, they boiled it down to you. Did you ask Jesus in your heart? Were you sincere? Listen, if you did, don't question your salvation. Listen, that's an errant view. I want to say that. That's an errant view. Paul tells the church of Philippians, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. He doesn't say work for it. He says work it out. Reconcile it with fear and trembling. So what do you need to reconcile? Well, I point people to the following. Matthew 5, verse 6, and verse 8, the words of Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you hunger and thirst for God's righteousness? Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, we know what the flesh is. It's this carnal life and everything that accompanies that carnal life. Is your mind set on the flesh? That's it. Just honest introspection, man. Is your mind set on the flesh? If it is, it's set on death. Because the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The flesh, Paul says, is hostile toward God. One of my pet peeves in today's Christian climate is how much people will defend sin. They'll defend it. We're not perfect. You know, nobody's perfect. Who are you to say this? Blah, 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 blah. And they will go through, through great pains to defend sin. Look at what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, the very things I do are not the things I want to do. I do the very thing I don't want to do. And they will take time and they will take labor to defend sin. But how many people are out there defending holiness? How many people are out there talking about the regenerative work that the Holy Spirit does in the heart of the believer? He doesn't fail in that work. Do we realize this? He who began a good work in you will continue to do so until the day of Jesus Christ, says Paul to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6. What God started, God will finish. In some it goes quick. In some it takes a long time. Some adapt very easily. Some are dumb like me and it takes a long time and it takes a lot of discipline of the Lord to say, hey, do you get it now? But what God had set out to do, God will indeed accomplish. Why? Because our God is sovereign. And nobody could say to him, what hast thou done? Nor can anyone stop his hand from concluding his very purpose. Amen. 
God is sovereign. God will complete the very work. He who began a good work in you will do so. Not maybe. Not if you let him. We hear that often. Well, you know, they're not letting God. God created all of creation by speaking a word. And we think we, we could stand in the way. Oh, they're not letting God do. That's why they're not being blessed. What God do you serve? Even John in 1 John, go back one chapter to chapter 3. Notice what John says here in John 3.10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are what? Obvious. They're obvious. Not subtle. Not indistinguishable. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one, notice this, nor the one who does not love his brother. Oh, but you don't understand, Pastor, I have a problem with this. You don't have a problem. You're sinning. Repent and turn from your sins. Return. Turn away. You're heading south. Turn around and head north. But you don't understand. Pastor, psychologically, it's a problem. You notice something about today's climate? You notice something today about modern psychology? And I'm not... Listen, there's a science to the mind. I get it. There's a real science to the mind. I got that. So I'm not being callous or anything. But there's a lack of accountability. There's a lack of accountability. It's everyone else's problem. My mommy didn't love me. My daddy was mean to me. He didn't play catch with me in the backyard. You know, this one didn't do this. This one didn't do that. The Bible is all about accountability. And let me tell you something, we're all accountable to the Lord. You know, I gave you those three verses. I want you to note something. In Matthew 5, 6 through 8, you have to turn there. Jesus speaks, I want you to see this. Jesus speaks to the heart of the believer that results in a desire for God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. There's the heart of the believer. What does it do? The hunger and the thirst result in a desire for God, much like if you were starving or you were thirsty, you would desire food or drink to satisfy that ache. In Romans 8, Paul speaks of the mind of the believer, the mind of the believer that is set on God. And he's set on God through the Holy Spirit that brings that life. In 1 John 3.10, the one we just read, notice John speaks of the deeds of the believer that give evidence to the new birth 
You notice that. The one who practices righteousness. And that word practice we've seen all over here. He says the difference between believers and unbelievers are obvious. Believers practice righteousness and love, right living before God and others, a love for fellow believers. These become a mark, one of many marks, but this becomes a mark of believers. And those marks of a believer are made by the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration within the believer. In verse 13, John states that this agape love of God given through the Holy Spirit is perfected in the believer. In verse 12, it is a mark of the believer. And all of this is evident with the believer's union with Christ. Listen, the believer's love for God is out of obedience for God because God loved us. It is a love of preference for God. It is a love of sacrifice for God because God loved us. It is a love for the church and the advancement of the gospel. Why? Because God loved us. It is a love of choice, choosing to love God and choosing to love others. Why? Because God loved us. And this agape love comes only from God. It testifies that God's Spirit dwells within the believer. Therefore, believers abide in God and God abides in believers. That should like be an instantaneous hallelujah, glory to God, praise God for that. So the question doesn't become, how do I know if I'm saved? The question becomes, how do I measure up to the biblical standard of a believer. Is this agape love of God evident within me? Is it evident within me? Do I have a burning and a consuming love for God that is perfected in me? You hear me say this quite often, right? The proof of desire is in the pursuit. Don't tell me you want something that you're not willing to go after and do. These are critical questions. Listen, every time I'm confronted with that question, I'll ask somebody, do you love the Lord? I love God. I believe in God. That's usually the first response. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, but do you love the Lord? Um, Yeah, I, I love the Lord. Do you pursue the Lord? Do you have a burning desire for Christ? Do you have a burning desire for God? Do you want to go deeper in Christ? Do you want to know Him more? How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend in the study and the meditation and the contemplation of the, of the Word of God? How much time do you spend in service? How much time do you, you give to the things of God? For far too many, Christ is a bolt-on to an already good life. But the passion of God definitely defines a mark that one has been touched by the agape love of God through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. Not only does it testify of God, not only does it testify of the Holy Spirit, but the love of God also testifies of Christ. Look at verse 14. 
And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John was an eyewitness to the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Heck, John writes at the end of his gospel in John 21, 24, this is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. Look at what John writes in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. Turn over there. We've been through this, but I want to call it to your attention again. 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father, and notice what he says, and was manifested to us. John again was an eyewitness to the living Christ. John bore that testimony to the churches, to all that he came in contact with. John was convinced. And he writes to the churches at the conclusion of this epistle, listen, with confidence of this gospel. The confidence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The confidence of God in Christ. First John, turn over to chapter 5 of 1 John. Look at verse 20. Here's this confidence. Listen to the confidence with which John writes. And we know that the Son of God has come. There's no equivocation in that statement, is there? Not only has He come, has He given us understanding in order, notice what He says here, in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Hey, talk like that, we'll probably get him exiled to Patmos. Talk like that, we'll probably get him thrown into a vat of boiling oil, but yet he won't be consumed. All those things happened to the Apostle John. Listen, I want to be clear. Forgiveness of sin testifies of Christ. Eternal life testifies of Christ. New birth testifies of Christ. The agape love of God testifies of Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. All the believer has is Christ. All the believer possesses is because of Christ. And all the believer wants is found in Christ. And all the believer wants is Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's take a look at verse 15. And this is the last one. The agape love of God testifies of the believer's union with Christ. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He with God. I want to call your attention again to that word confess. We've looked at that before. That word simply means to be in agreement to say the same thing, 
Notice how it's used. Whoever confesses, whoever is in agreement, whoever says the same thing about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. And He is God. Listen, there are many who verbally profess Christ, but whom are not in agreement with the biblical definition of Christ. Many who believe in a Christ of their own making and of their own liking. Their Christ is totally tolerant of all manner of sin. A Christ who does not demonstrate his own love of power in the lives of those who profess him. Listen, that is not the Christ of the Scriptures. And that is not the Christ that John is writing about. Previously in this chapter, John writes in 1 John 3.23, this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He is commanded. I want to call something to your attention. When it talks about believing in the name, it does not mean that we believe in the person historically of Christ. That term name means we believe in the authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. So many many today would say, I believe in Jesus, and what they're referring to is the historical personage of Jesus Christ. That's not saving faith. It is only the one who has come to Christ in repentance and faith who has bowed the knee before Christ turned from themselves and turned to Him and trusted in that perfect work on the cross for their salvation. In 1 John 5, 10, John makes this statement, the one who believes, and we know what believe is, right, to entrust oneself. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne according to his Son. He'll go on to state in verse 12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. All of what John has been writing about. Forgiveness of sin, eternal life, the agape love of God, all of it is summed up in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of all things. Listen, think for a moment. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from Jesus Christ. There is no eternal life, no love of God or love for God apart from Jesus Christ. There is no new birth apart from Jesus Christ, no resurrection from the dead apart from Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, there would be no hope whatsoever of any future. No hope. There's no worship of God apart from Jesus Christ. Our prayers would be meaningless without Jesus Christ. There would be no Holy Spirit, no access to God the Father, no future apart from an eternity in hell separated from Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no salvation in Christ. And we have to make up our minds that it is only through 
Christ. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. None. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It is only through Christ, that great reformation proclamation, that we believe in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the Christ of history. That is the Christ of the Holy Scriptures. Listen, this Christ is one with the Father. The Christ whom the Apostle Paul stated, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's the second person of the triune God. Of this Jesus, the prophet Isaiah prophesied, a virgin shall bear a child, and, and, uh, and, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. This Isaiah also prophesied, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. The Christ of which the centurion cried out, Surely this man is the Son of God. The one who the Apostle Thomas, upon seeing the resurrected Christ, cried out and said, My Lord, my God. Of this Christ the Apostle Paul told the church at Colossae, And He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authority. All things have been created by Him and for Him. This is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews writes of Jesus. He's the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. The Apostle John called Jesus the Word, the Lagos. And this word, John states, the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory as the only begotten God full of grace and truth. Jesus is the great I Am of John 8, 58. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world of John 1, 21. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the fourth man in the fire in Daniel. He is the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. He is the bright and morning star. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lamb as if slain found in Revelation chapter 6. He is the rider on a white horse. He is called faithful and true he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood whose name is the word of god and on his robe as revelation 19 says on his robe and on his thigh he has a new name which is written king of kings and lord of lords he is the only one the only one that every living creature Every dead creature, every alive creature, every angel, every demon, every principality, every person ever born will declare, every believer, every atheist, every saint of God, every enemy of God, whoever cursed his name will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the only Jesus that every person must confess. The only Jesus that offers salvation and forgiveness of sin and new life in Christ. 
For we're told in the Scripture, for neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And the exhortation found in Acts 16.31, to all men, to all women, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So what does this mean? What does this mean to me? Okay, Mark, what's the big deal? Well, number one, if you haven't gotten the big deal, there ain't nothing more I could do for you. The agape love of God is summed up in Jesus Christ. The agape love of God is summed up in Jesus Christ. It is summed up in a love for Christ. It is summed up in a desire to worship Christ. It is summed up in a service and a sacrifice for Christ. It is summed up in a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But mostly in a deep and abiding love for God. And for Christ. It all comes down to this. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 6.4. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart. All of thy mind. And all of thy soul. John says if you do this. If that's you. The love of Christ will be manifested. It will be perfected. It will be consummated. It will reach its height in your life. And if it's not you, then by the authority of the Word of God, I beg you and I implore you, turn from your sin. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from trusting in religion. Turn from trusting in your dead formalism. It will do you no good when you stand before the Master. Repent. Trust Christ. Be saved. Put your hope and your trust on Christ and that finished work He did on the cross. And you will be born again. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, as we um, come to You now,